and welcome to the Smuggles Podcast. This is episode 53 and this is an interview with Professor Robin Taylor on treatment escalation plans. Now please note treatment escalation plans can also be known as treatment escalation limitation plans and the acronyms are TEPS or TELPS and they can be used and are used interchangeably in this podcast but they are one and the same thing. Please note also that Professor Robin Taylor discusses a real case that he had in New Zealand. He mentions the family name Johnson, but please note this is a fictitious name, but the case itself is real. Let's just jump right in. Okay, so you're all very welcome to the Simungos podcast. We're here to talk about treatment escalation plans and possibly a little bit of realistic conversations about people at risk of deterioration. We will see if we can squeeze that in at the end. And I'm here with Professor... Taylor, who is a consultant respiratory physician at NHS Lanarkshire. Professor Taylor, you're very welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Ewan. It's a, it's a privilege to be with you. And so let's let's start off. Um, so what exactly is a treatment escalation plan? A treatment escalation plan is a tool. And it's a tool that is used for in the hospital setting. Often patients come in and they're seen by a multiplicity of teams, ED, the admissions unit, the medical ward, the surgical ward. And it's to, it's to try to ensure consistency so that if there's a conversation with the patient at the front door by someone like yourself who's an ED consultant and a consent has been given for some treatments or preferences have been expressed by the patient or you have decided that some treatments should would be some interventions would be contrary to the patient's interest. That can all be summarized in a single page that goes at the front of the notes and then is available to other medical teams, surgical teams, who subsequently are looking after the patient in the first three, four, six, ten days of, of an admission. It's about continuity of care. It's about reducing the variability in medical decision-making. It's it, And it's actually... A TEP, the, the way the, the, in the boundaries of decision making are communicated down the line, it provides an immense amount of security for nursing and junior staff. Okay, so how did this all begin for you? How did you become interested in treatment escalation planning? Um, well, it began unexpectedly. I, was, I lived and worked in New Zealand until eight years ago, but about a year before I left New Zealand in my respiratory ward, I was on call and I met with a family. Uh, their father was 78, had severe COPD and was essentially dying of bronchopneumonia and respiratory failure. And he'd been in hospital several times and we all knew that that was the case. And we sat down and I spent about the quarters of an hour with the family and we were all reconciled to the fact that this patient was not going to survive. And he was on a little bit of haloperidol, some oxygen, occasional morphine. I came into the ward the next morning and the charge nurse pulled me aside and said, you better go down to the patient lounge because the Johnson family are sitting there waiting to speak to you. Uh, David died at 5 a.m. So I went down and the Johnson family tore me apart. Uh, at two o'clock in the morning, their father, David, had become slightly more breathless and distressed. The nurse called the on-call registrar and the registrar, bless his cotton socks, gave him, uh, did three sets of blood gases, put up an aminophilin infusion and started non-invasive ventilation. 
And the family said to me, um, we sat yesterday afternoon and you promised my father a dignified death. And there's what happened. And they were a very nice family, but they were very angry. You know, some families are just naturally temperamentally a bit short fused, but this was not the case. And I came out of that meeting traumatized, realizing that the system in which I functioned had let them down and I was responsible for the system. So I sat down with the church nurse and I said, that's never going to happen in our ward again. Mark my words. And so um, I realized that the communication issues were important, that although I'd made decisions, they weren't being well communicated with the junior staff. And so we, at that point, we put together almost within a, a day or two, a treatment escalation limitation plan. We didn't call it that in those days, but that was the start because I saw how flawed the system was in delivering appropriate care. That man did not need non-invasive ventilation and blood gases and all the rest of it. That man needed what we had instituted at five o'clock at night and he needed that for the remainder of his life. Instead of which he died on NIV, which he didn't want and which a registrar was insisting. You know, it's the curative medical model applied to all situations, all one size fits all and it was entirely wrong. And I took that vow and I, that's how I, I followed it through. And then when I came to Scotland, well, the same problems were happening and the same solutions were required. And that's how I got into it. And so the whole crux of it is really communication, isn't it? It's about coming to that decision, but communicating it in, in such a way that everyone involved in that patient's care knows that plan and has access to that plan in the middle of the night or when, you know, the lead clinicians aren't around yes well there yes that is part of the crux the crux is that there's appropriate decision making and treatment for somebody whom you can, who for whom interventions are going to be futile and i went through that with that gentleman and his family and everyone was agreed that that was the way we ought to be going but it, it fell over and so it's not just about uh it's not just about communication although i agree that was the instigating moment this was poor. I put. I communicated poorly. In actual fact, the junior member of staff should have been thinking differently than just blood gases and NIV. He should have been thinking: um, Is my is my action here going to be appropriate for the needs of the patient and the context in which he was caring for the patient? And that's the whole business of medical decision making, which needs to be much more flexible and much more appropriate. And that's what undergirds treatment escalation and limitation planning. Now, we'll include an example tip uh, in the show notes uh, so you, uh, people listening can see exactly uh, what that looks like. But for those who don't have access to that immediately, could you please describe just the main components of the tip? Well, the, more, the main components vary from form to form. I'm not dedicated to a particular form, but and there are tips in various parts of the United Kingdom being used. But the basics are, who is this for? Are there any guidelines that you would um, have at the back of your mind when you're arriving at what are the goals of treatment? And essentially, the medical decision-making process leads to the goals of treatment. And the goals of treatment have to be articulated just in single words or in a single line at the front of the tip. And then there's the decision about DNA CPR. We could maybe come back to that at a later point of our conversation. Um, uh, and then there are options as to whether uh, the patient is for full escalation 
or maybe there are limitations. Maybe, for example, you're saying, let's take my own background. Let's say you've got a severe COPD who's been in patient in, in the in the hospital two or three times in the past, and he does not want BiPAP to control his respiratory failure, or it's going to be causing harm or distress, and we know that, then you would put down not for BiPAP. So there are boundaries that are, are set. And these boundaries may be um, enacted at the time the TEP is written, but often what, what where the TEP kicks in as being useful is later down the track if the patient is unstable or deteriorates. And you think, well, what now? And so you've got written on the form, there are certain things we will do and are appropriate, and there are certain things we won't do and are inappropriate. And that's communicated to anybody who may be looking after the patient. And just with regards to the basic mechanics of them, who, who would complete them? Who is overall responsibility for the form? Well, I mean, the, the model uh, is the DNA CPR form, but you know and I know that, first of all, starting a conversation about DNA CPR with a patient is the wrong place to start when you're talking to them, particularly if you're treating something that has got nothing to do with their, with their cardiovascular status. Um, but that's a sort of a model. Therefore, I, I mean, I've been encouraging everyone to think about TEP, whether it's a staff nurse or an FY1 or an ED trainee or a consultant. But ultimately, the, the responsibility is the, the lead clinician, and they certainly have to sign one off. Um, I think there's a degree of experience and maturity that makes... Uh, makes it helpful to have a consultant who oversees it, but in a busy on a busy night, um, it may be necessary for for trainee staff to to embark on the process and then have it endorsed at a later time because they know and understand that that the boundaries of treatment are very important to establish for the for the well being of the patient. And who needs one? Is it every patient? Is it certain patients? Well, there's a sense in which if every patient had one, it would be a better world. But that's not pragmatic. Um, in the course of the COVID emergency, we set in Lanarkshire, we set out uh, uh, criteria for not only the patients who would have a TEP, but also some of the boundaries that would be put in place. Um, my own inclination is for you to for anyone to assess the patient, say, is this patient likely to be in the last 12 months of life? And there's systems of doing that. There's a thing called SPICT, and there's a system called GSF, Gold Standards Framework. Um, very crudely, you would say, would I be surprised if this patient were to, were to be um, deceased within 12 months of now? And if they've had two or three hospital admissions and they've got multiple comorbidities, sometimes you can arrive at that answer very readily. They are the vulnerable people. They are the people who, if they deteriorate, may suffer more than they may benefit if high-powered medical interventions are delivered. They are the sort of people that you have to be sensitive to and kind towards, such that the medicine, the, the medical care they receive is actually helpful to them and isn't just indulging a clinician in his desire to be a hero. That's the thing that got me into this. And that's the thing that 
I think we, we all of us need to avoid. And is it a form that is completed once? Can it be modified during the course of, of, uh, of a patient's stay in hospital? And is it one for each admission or is it one that kind of lasts beyond their, their right. discharge? Well, that's a very helpful question. In the community, a patient may have an advanced care plan or an anticipatory care plan. And if that pre-exists the arrival in hospital, the terms and conditions, the provisions of that existing ACP should be taken into account. But essentially, a TELP or a TEP for a hospital admission is anticipating the present admission. And so, although the conversation may shape future admissions, the, the, the focus is on now. Now, um, if a patient's in hospital for three or four days, seven days, 10 days, their clinical situation may change and therefore, and their preferences may change. And what is wise in terms of their management may change. I can remember a surgeon I was chatting to um, said um, uh, he was feeling very happy that he had used the TEP four times in one patient. And he said, you know, I, uh, Robin, I've, I've used the form. And I said, that's great. We'll call him Paul. His name was not Paul, but oh, I said, that's great, Paul. He said, I've used it four times in one patient. And the point was, he had a patient who had subacute obstruction. She was 84 and she had comorbidities. And at first, she'd had previous resection for a carcinoma of the, rec of the colon. And now she had subacute obstruction. And at first, he wanted to he relieved the obstruction surgically, but she wasn't fit. They tried to, uh, over a 48-hour period, get the patient stabilized such that she would be fit for surgery. But then the situation evolved in a manner which, whereas, whereby originally the goals of treatment were set out in a particular way, but they had to be modified because the situation was changing. And actually the conversation with the patient led her to say, doctor, I, I really don't want a big operation. And so it is an evol it can it may have to change. It's not like an advanced directive where it's legally binding. And sometimes it has to be overruled if if in the patient's interest it's got the wrong provision set out at the beginning and hasn't been changed. So it's a it should be regarded as very flexible, but just because it's flexible doesn't mean it hasn't got significance or meaning. So can I ask, how does this fit alongside the DNA CPR form? Is DNA CPR included in a TEP or is it still a separate entity? Well, a DNA CPR is interestingly the original TEP. Um, it had its focus exclusively on CPR and when and when that not, might, might not be appropriate or uh, consistent with the patient's wishes. Um, a TEP should include the issue of CPR but it's a grave mistake to start a conversation with a patient about CPR, particularly if it's not relevant. I mean, CPR might be relevant to somebody with a myocardial infarction who's got unstable uh, rhythm and so on. Uh, it might be relevant if you're taking a patient to theater where there's the risk of post-operative cardiac instability. But in all honesty, CPR is a rarely performed intervention by comparison with a range of others. So if a patient comes in who's gravely ill, 
the conversation should focus first and foremost on what are the goals of care that are appropriate for the patient. And the CPR element should be tacked on at the end. Um, the reason for de-emphasizing it is that there's, a, there's a, a, a great misunderstanding, which is still common out there in the public domain, which misinterprets a DNA CPR as being a do not treat order. And they think they're, they're particularly sons and daughters think that their elderly parent is being abandoned. Well, that's both unethical and untrue. But if we start with CPR and don't have a discussion and a tip put in place, which is appropriate for the patient's particular circumstances, and we start with CPR, we're going to amplify the risk of misunderstanding. And there are lots of complaints about DNA CPR. Um, to date, we haven't had, we've hardly had any complaints about uh, the TILP. So I would really encourage everyone to minimize the importance of DNA CPR and emphasize the importance of a TEP in the way forward with all of this. So who, who benefits most from the plan? I mean, in my head, I kind of remember two in the morning, FY1, FY2, you don't know the patient. And it must be extremely helpful for, for that particular health professional to, to be guided as to what to do in that moment. Is that the main benefit of this plan? Well, I think there are three groups who benefit. The first and foremost, obviously, is the patient. The second is the staff who are called on to deal with an, a deteriorating situation. And interestingly, we're increasingly identifying that the family members, particularly of patients who die in hospital, the family members, the aftermath of the death in the lives of sons, daughters, husbands, wives, is a lot better if there's a plan in place. And um, uh, so th this, is, this, is, this is benefit of benefit to all three groups. So where do you feel is the, the right time or, or right place to have that conversation? Is it immediately in the emergency department or when the patient's stabilized in emergency or is it when they're up on the ward or the next day? When do you feel is the best opportunity to have the conversation? The, the best opportunity or the best timing is that a TEP should be developed and applied as soon as possible when the, after the patient arrives in a hospital. And I understand the constraints there are in an ED. Um, I have to say that in NHS Lanarkshire, where I've been working on this over the last four years, the ED staff have been very uh, proactive in this. And the reason why it's important to have it in there early is because if we start with medical interventions that, to all intents and purposes, look as if they're designed to cure or achieve survival, then the patient starts to go down a sort of pathway. They're on a sort of um, conveyor belt that is very difficult to bring them. It's very difficult to bring them off. And so if clinician number one decides to go down a particular way, clinician number two and three and four will usually follow suit. And that may have been the wrong medical decision at the very, from the start. It may, the, the goals that they're seeking to serve are resuscitative and then become 
curative in their intent. And the patient's interests may not be served by getting onto that pathway from the very beginning. Therefore, the earliest opportunity to consider what are the goals? What are we seeking to do here? What are the patient's wishes? What are the family wishes? What are the, what are the, what are the outcomes that are both appropriate and achievable? What are these, what are these outcomes then? Let's, let's think about that as soon as possible after the patient arrives in the hospital and not later down the track. And of course, as I've said already, you can change the goals of treatment later on if, if situation emerges in a manner that fresh, sheds fresh light on the original decision. And who do you feel is the most appropriate person to have the conversation? Is it the most senior physician available or can it be junior physicians? Can it be nursing staff? Who, who, who's, who's the best? In NHS Lanarkshire over the last three years, we've tried to develop a team approach to this. And sometimes charge nurses and staff nurses can be more alert to what's appropriate by way of patient treatment than the medics. That's the honest truth. They can be aware of patient preferences that ought to be translated into um, the provisions of a TEP, sometimes more than the clinicians. I think a team approach is also important. I think we need to create a permission-giving environment. So an FY2 can spend time with a patient. A trainee doctor can spend, and they realize they themselves have a, an understanding that a TEP which sets boundaries on intervention or which promotes particularly appropriate interventions, notably palliative treatments, um, the FY2 can know that that's right. And, the, and I think it's absolutely, it's very important for their training and for patient well-being that they be, they be given permission to do that. But just like for DNA CPR, we say that that decision should be endorsed within 24 hours by the lead clinician. The lead clinician cannot be there all of the time. So everyone has a role to play, but it's up to lead clinicians and consultants to um, inform and discuss at multidisciplinary team meetings, for example, how that's going to play out in a pragmatic way. Um, I do think that junior staff need to feel secure in both initiating a TEP and in using a TEP. And that's the most significant element in all of this when we say who is responsible. And when you were implementing this in NHS Lanarkshire, how much training was given to the conversation and how to have the conversation? Because that can be challenging for people. Yes. You know, is there, are there, I, I was interested to know what, what your kind of advice was. Are there any frameworks or, or guidance on, on how to have the conversation? Any top tips that you would give us on how to get the conversation right? Well, there are three dimensions to this. Um, the first is the conversation is right if you know what you're aiming for and the, the tip itself summarizes that you're aiming to get goals of treatment sorted out. There are the communication skills. Secondly, there are the communication skills. Um, how to formulate the interaction is a communication skill. And there's, there are lots of modules available, um, simulated training, and so on that's available to develop the communication skills. May I say, I think it's a communication skill that every clinician who's at the front line needs to develop. I don't think it's a matter of temperament or aptitude. 
I think it's a matter of professional responsibility. And the third dimension is that as well as communication skills, there's the whole issue of um, medical decision-making. Now, many of us, particularly if we're older, come from a background where uh, we're, in essence, death-defying and death-denying. And our medical decision-making is shaped by establishing what's the pathophysiological process that's affecting this patient. For example, in my role, it's, you know, are they in type 2 or type 1 respiratory failure, for example. But from my experience, we need to shift away from that because if, if my goal is to, is to reverse abnormal pathophysiology, then that becomes pretty well uh, insensitive or has the potential to become insensitive to the patient's real needs, particularly in the last 12 months of life. So medical decision-making has to change. Communication skills have to be adapted and developed. And then we need to know how to use the form and what it contains so, so that both our medical decision-making and our, and our communication with the patient and the family uh, come together in what's expressed in a simple piece of paper. But it's just a tool which pulls together both of these elements. I think it's probably a whole podcast in itself to discuss how to have the conversation in detail and the different frameworks that you can use. But I was just curious, if you don't mind, about how you instigate, because I think how you start the conversation, that first sentence, that opening gambit, that, that I'd be interested to know, do you have a way that you do that? And that, that might be interesting for our listeners to hear. How do you start the conversation? What's the first thing you say to the patient? Well, the, fir the first thing to, um, to tackle is to win the patient over and win them into the conversation. Um, there are some who do not want to talk about their future. Uh, about 10% of patients will say, doctor, I don't want you to be talking about that. Uh, you can speak to my daughter or my son about that or my or my, or my, or my husband, or my wife. But that's a minority. How do I get into it? Well, remember, I'm functioning in a different, slightly different setting. I'm usually in a clinic or in the ward, not in ED. But um, if I were embarking on this, I would say, now, we'll call, I'm always calling about John and Mary. We'll say, Mary, Mary, you're not well. And, you know, your x-ray shows you've got a pneumonia on you. And uh, given that you've got your COPD and so on, and pneumonia, um, things could go well and, or things, um, I, I can't be sure, but I need to know something about your thoughts if, if what lies ahead is, is going to be difficult for us all. That would be something of my opener because I'm, I'm, A, I'm being truthful. Truth is a precious commodity. I am saying, A, you're seriously ill, B, um, I'm unsure of what the future holds. And C, I really, I really want to engage with you a little bit about this. And I think the tone and the, the tone of your conversation has to be empathetic, but your truthfulness has to be there. You have to say, look, um, this, this, is a, this is a situation. I, I, I'm unhappy. I'm, I'm sorry you're here in hospital. I'm sorry you're having to cope with all of this, but... But we need, we need to talk about your future just a little bit so that I make the right decisions for you and I give you the right advice. That's my sort of 
that's the sort of line I would take. So what is the the evidence behind it? Is it, I know this is fairly new, but is there some evidence to support TEPs? Yeah, the literature on outcomes in relation to TEPs is quite limited. Um, in our locality, in Myers Hospital, in NHS Lanarkshire, we conducted a study in 2017-18 on patients who died in the hospital. And interestingly, at that stage in its implementation, about 50% of the patients who died had a TEP and 50% did not. And we focused particularly on medical harms and non-beneficial interventions. And the outcome was that in the patients, and we here we're talking about 150 patients per group, roughly. But the rate of medical harms was uh, three times higher in those who did not have a TEP. And by medical harms, we're meaning commission as well as omission. And one of the harms, I think, is the slower, late introduction of palliative treatments. That's an omission. If you've actually thought through what are the goals, you've put in place a TEP, that will also include an understanding of what the trajectory is and you're ready and willing to introduce palliative treatments at an appropriate time. So often patients, the patients who died without a TEP, the, the, the palliative measures were being brought in 12 and 24 hours before they died. Far too late. And everybody knew the patient was dying, it's just they never grasped it and translated that into a change in the goals and a change in the TEP. Uh, another couple of things we have done, we've done a few studies. Um, the use of inappropriate use of antibiotics has been radically changed by the use of a TEP. And intravenous antibiotic use for, you know, silly reasons and inappropriate reasons is so common. And it's giving rise to big issues in terms of hospital-acquired infections and so on and so forth. So when somebody looks at a TEP and says, ah, yes, we're, we're not going to continue IV antibiotics, then that's an important decision. And we've shown that that happens if you've got a TEP. Inappropriate antibiotic use goes down. Uh, the other one is patient complaints. So here's a benefit to the family. And we've already got in the literature um, clear evidence that anxiety and depression after a patient's death, if the patient died, is much higher in those with a, without a plan compared to those who have a plan. And that's because it's not just the patients, the whole family understand where this is all leading and they're able to process the bereavement in advance. And in, interestingly, um, we showed in a study that's now published that the frequency of complaints in relation to a patient's death is halved in those who have a TEP. So there are objective data out there in the literature um, that actually justify the rationale. I mean, the rationale is there, but you need to say, well, in, in, there is a, are there outcomes that are measurable? And the answer is yes, there are. Harms go down, complaints go down, and the well-being of families is improved. So what have you discovered? What, what, what happens if we don't have a TEP? What sort of troubles can we get into and junior staff can get into? Um, well, that's a very uh, important point, actually, because we don't actually reckon too often on the what we call the moral distress that some members of the medical or surgical team 
or even more so the ICU team can experience. Um, and there is a literature on this. So if you have a management plan for a patient and it's um, got, if the patient's for full escalation and full intervention, and the person delivering that plan is the staff nurse in ICU or the FY2 out of hours. And they think to themselves, this is all wrong. You know, I've, I've watched this patient for the last 24 hours, but, but the consultant is insisting on doing this or insisting on doing that. Or I don't feel at liberty to back off from the curative intervention. I feel it would be a risk to me. All these tensions build up and it's called moral distress because what they're doing and what their consciences tell them they should be doing are at variance with one another. And what the literature, interestingly, it's concerning ICU staff, says that moral distress is one of the principal reasons for people giving up work in, IC, in the ICU setting. The European Society of ICU uh, staff um, did a huge survey on this about eight years ago among 2,000 of their members. And believe it or not, high workload and low pay were not the chief reasons for leaving the job. Moral distress was the And that's when you have this discrepancy between what's right for the patient and what you're actually delivering. And usually it's over-treatment. Usually it's intensive treatment, which is not going to work. It's futile. And we should stop now instead of lingering on and causing suffering. That's what causes the angst in the conscience of some of our staff. And we need a senior staff to acknowledge that and be willing to liberate our junior staff and our nurses from being in that position. And we do so by appropriate medical decision-making and translating that into the TEP, which is at the front of the patient's chart. Okay, I think that seems like a good place to to end thank you very much before we go um i always ask every uh guest the same question if you don't mind i bring you back in my time machine um basically uh, with with the experience that you've gained in your practice um over the past number of years and in, in belfast and in new zealand and now in scotland what have you gained in all of that time what what one piece of advice would you give your junior self starting their career if you could go back and speak to that person leaving medical school Earlier in our conversation, you and I described the very traumatic experience I had as quite an old consultant, and I wished the lesson I learned in that experience is something I would I had applied 20 and 30 years before, and the answer is, um, is not to be squeamish about being honest with a patient. Um, I don't like delivering bad news. I don't like being explicit about my own doubts concerning how things are going to go. But I think being falsely optimistic and delivering um, inappropriate levels of hopefulness, as if I was a custodian of hope, I'm not. Um, I think I would, I would say, I, w I really wish that early on in all of this, I had been more courageous with the truth. And I think I was scared of either letting the patient down or bizarrely, you know, up 
giving them a kick in the guts when they didn't need it. But in actual fact, I've learned that the patients appreciate the truth more than they appreciate white lies. And, and false optimism does them no good. And I wish I'd put that into practice really early on and realized that what I deliver should be shaped by truthfulness. It shouldn't be shaped by my desire to be a heroic doctor. Um, Professor Taylor, I think that's uh, absolutely the perfect way to end. Thank you so much for your time today. Ewan, it's been a privilege. I've really appreciated it. Thank you. Thank you to you. Thank you.